Again, speaking of Christ, Colossians 1, beginning in 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you to his, by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So again, here what he's doing is reminds him in 21 that at one time they were alienated from God. They were hostile towards God. Uh, that was, again, we talk about that, that when man is born, he's born spiritually uh, dead. He's already condemned. Uh, remember, we commit sins because we're already sinners. That's our natural uh, disposition. Paul reminds them that this is where they were, uh, but now they are no longer that way because of what Christ has done. So remember, he's already set up that Christ is to be preeminent. He's to be first in every way uh, that we can imagine that, and that we are to worship him and honor him. And then he continues to help us to understand what Christ has done for us. So here we have the one who is to be worshipped, the one who is to be preeminent and is preeminent, and then he reminds us what he's done for each one of us individually, which is uh, the main point, which is reconciliation, which we spent quite a bit of time talking about that word and, and what, that, what that means. So we're not going to go over the details of that word again. But he tells us here again in verse 22 that the reason why we've been reconciled, uh, and this is important for us, there's a, I guess we call it a, it's more than a nuance, but what we need to remember is that We've been saved by Christ, so that means we know we we're forgiven of our sins. We know we're no longer bound for hell. We know that we're guaranteed a place in heaven. Uh, we're very grateful for that. But God's purpose in saving us was not just for that. Okay, this, it's more than that. Uh, too often what happens, uh, and maybe more so in our, in our culture, uh, it seems that people think that's what salvation is all about, that it's only about that. That you place your faith in Christ, I'm going to heaven, that's it. And uh, we're kind of done, and we go along our merry way. And some Christians decide to continue to change and be good, uh, but as long as we have that part taken care of, everything is cool. Well, what he wants us to know, that that is not God's full intention. Um, that it's kind of like, um, if you heard of a family that adopted a child, and... They adopted the child, and, and, but they don't seem to be taking care of that child really well. And let's say you ask them, like, well, I've, I've noticed you have this boy you've adopted. You've adopted Tommy, and you have your other children, but you don't really treat Tommy like the others. Well, we did the important thing. We adopted him. We gave him a family. He has our names. That's all that counts. You know, we give him food every now and then, and, you know, we'll give him some hand-me-downs, and, you know, that's about it. You know, he doesn't really need anything else. We would always say, wait, wait, wait hold on. You know, because we would, we would have said, well, I, I thought that the goal of this was you would have adopted this little boy to become a full member of your family, for you to love him, for him to love you, to meet his needs, to kind of, you know, in a sense, pour your life in him, to guide and direct him, to enable him to, to be able to, to learn and, and be able to be prepared to live life and avoid all the pitfalls, pit, pitfalls that would normally affect an individual like him. So, oh no, we're not, we're not into all that. That's just way too much. We would, we would think something is up. Something is wrong with that picture. Well, it's the same thing with salvation. We've been adopted into God's family. Why would we think that it's only about, well, I'm adopted. And some people, they don't say this, 
but it's almost like they, they, they say this. So let's say you have a life, you've got some trouble going on, you know, your life's in kind of some disarray, not really bad, but life isn't good. You, you hear the gospel, you do understand clearly that you are a sinner, you do understand that you need Christ to be saved, you want to go to heaven, um, you know that you are guilty of some things, and so you, you believe in Christ and you confess your sins, um, and let's say there's some changes that take place in your life, and your life is going better, and, and we're kind of happy. It's almost like we do this. It's almost like we sometimes say, you know, God, and I really appreciate what you've done for me. I mean, the whole salvation thing is great because I know I can never save myself. And so, no, I'm going to heaven. That's awesome. And my life has changed some. Man, my life is so much better now. But I think that's enough. I really don't want to change anymore. I like how my life is. You know, I know I'm not perfect. There's some things I kind of want to hold on to. And uh, so I don't want to get carried away with this. No one says that. But that is sometimes how we live. Maybe it's a lot how we live. So, but what we have to think the opposite of that is not this. Because this is where we have to kind of recognize maybe, I guess, again, part of our human nature. Some people, when they hear that, they think only negative things. Yeah, I know what you're saying, Pastor Bob. So we got to give our whole life to God, and it's all about God, and have to go to church every time the doors are open, and they kind of go with this long thing, like it's just this real drag, um, and there's all this bondage, like, we, like we're placing all these heavy chains around your neck, where you can't do this, and you can't do that. That's not the Christian life, all right? Are there rules? Absolutely. But God created the rules for our sake, for our benefit. Not for his benefit so that he could control us and we live in obedience. It was so that we would not come back under the same bondage we were under before. It's so that we could be free, so we can enjoy life. Remember, God has created this world for us to enjoy, to enjoy him. So, yes, it is all about him. And, yeah, there's plenty of commands which we need because we have a natural bent to go wrong. But it's really for our benefit. And, of course, because we have a natural tendency to go wrong, we kind of... You know, we kind of, kind of resist some of that stuff, uh, and we got to, you know, we have to overcome that. But it's so that we can really enjoy life, and, and we can get the really the most out of this life that we can while we're awaiting the day that the Lord returns and completely does away with sin forever, and life is in a sense perfect. So we want to make sure that we don't allow kind of a wrong understanding of things or a negative attitude uh, to come in, or somehow we're imagining that there's this kind of a legalistic life that God's calling us to live. Because it really isn't that. Remember one time I was trying to describe it when I was in the jail teaching. Um, I was talking to the inmates about, you know, the life that God's called us to live. And I always try to find a lot of different ways to help us kind of grasp the concept. So I told them, I said, well, I said, when it comes to all these commands and rules that God gives us, I said, I said maybe we should, we should think of it this way. I said, so let's, let's imagine that we're going to play a basketball game. And so this basketball game, I'm going to pick the four guys I want on my team. And then you can pick the five guys or four guys you want on your team. And so I go ahead and pick the biggest, strongest guys that are in here. And we're on one team. And you're thinking, man, Chaplin don't understand basketball. You just have all these big guys that ain't going to be helpful. And you get all these guys that are fast and quick and they're really good at the game. And so then we go and we get ready to play the game. And, you know, there's the tip. And you pass the ball to one of your buddies. 
and he's just as fast as he can be, and he drives the lane for a layup, and I just basically, boom, clothesline him, <laughs> knock him flat, the ball rolls away, we pick the ball up, I hand to my teammate, and you go, foul, I go, oh, no, 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 you misunderstand. There's no rules. How much fun are you going to have? You're not going to have much fun at all. You say, well, oh, I, I, I picked the wrong guys for my team. All right, but the point is, is if you think about it, it's the rules that make the game fun. Right? It's the rules that make the game fun. So the ISO is the same thing in life. All right? we have, you know, if you don't have these rules, there's chaos. There's absolute pandemonium. And so we need to recognize that, that God actually knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. He understands us, and he's, and he's developed all these things for our benefit, to guide and direct us, and others as well. And most people would say that if everybody followed what the Bible said, I think the world would be a better place. In fact, I know it would be. And so that's kind of the idea that we need to maybe, maybe bring to the plate. So he tells us here then, when it comes to uh, this reconciliation, in verse 22... We see here that he's reconciled us to God in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. So there's, there's a goal in mind as, as to what God wants to accomplish in us. And he wants, there's this time in the future that he wants to present us to someone, which will become clear as we go on, to present us as being these kinds of individuals. All right, It's kind of like what a... What, what, coaching does in whatever sport there is when you're when you're coaching individuals you want them to improve in their skills and all these kinds of things their knowledge of the game so they can play better both as individuals and as a unit so that the goal is to win the championship and you know to get there you just can't do whatever you want all right you, you ha there's a lot of things that go into that a lot of work that goes into that and so it's almost like you know it's almost like the coach is saying this is what we're working for what we're working for is so that I can present you one day to the presentation committee can give you the trophy for being the best football team that there is. That's kind of the idea. So it's for our benefit and this is what he wants to do. So he tells us here that he wants to present us as blameless. So the word blameless uh, in the Greek language is the word almamos, um, uh, uh, and I'm probably saying it wrong. Uh, but it's a word where it was used in, in, the, in the realm of sacrifice. Basically, before an animal could be offered as a sacrifice, it had to be inspected to see if there's any blemish that was found. If there was a blemish found in that animal, then the animal was considered to be unfit for an offering to God because only the best could be offered to God. So the idea is, is there's going to be this inspection and there's supposed to be no flaw, no blemish. That's the idea. Now, of course, we understand already that when we become believers, we're flawed people who come to Christ. We know that we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. But there's this work that God begins in us at that point in time to make us more like his son Christ, to help us to become blameless. So it's not that we're, going to be, we're not going to become God. We're not going to become perfect in the way that we're thinking of perfection. But the idea is, is to move us towards being blameless, that there's, that there's no defilement, there's no, you know, for example, in our relationships with other people, there's no hidden agenda. You know, there, you are, you're, you're free from ulterior motives. Um, there's, you know, you're not addicted to any kind of a sin. Uh, and that's kind of the idea. He wants to move us in this direction uh, as individuals. 
So basically, the idea is that the, the individual, you and I, are going to be presented to God. We are an offering to God. God wants to take every part of our life, your work life, pleasure, sport, home life, personal relationships, and he wants to make all of them so that they can be basically offered to God. The idea is that then every aspect of my life should speak well of who God is. Uh, we sometimes do this, for example, let's say, that, let's say if, if I'm at a restaurant, let's say I treat the waitress really rude, and she finds out that not only I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, because this is normally how people think. She, she might say to me or maybe to someone else, I really thought that as a pastor, he would treat me nicer. Okay, so what's in her mind is that because I'm a pastor, that should mean something. I should be acting differently. So what we want to make sure we understand is that, no, it's not because I'm a pastor, it's because I'm a Christian. So the idea then, as a Christian, so, there's, so we can use this kind of terminology. So if you're married, it's not enough that you want to be a good husband or a good wife. You want to be, a, you want to, you want to be one that's a Christian. Because that affects every aspect of your life, every aspect of your relationship. All right? Because if you say, I'm a good husband, well, that can mean a lot of things, and it can also mean a lot of things that aren't what the standard of the Bible has. And so the idea is that, that when I'm at work, I'm a Christian. When I'm at home, I'm, everywhere I go, I'm a Christian. And so I, I need to behave as a Christian, or I need to live in a biblical way. Uh, and when we say that we need to, it should also be that we want to. Right? So again, it's not like a burden that God's put on us. It, it is where, uh, so that I can be, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, so I can be all I was meant to be. All right, but I don't mean the sense of joining the army and be all you can be. I mean, what I mean is the idea of, of being really living up to the full potential that an individual possesses being made in the image of God. All right, so I'm able to treat everybody with kindness because I'm going to be understanding. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be worried about trying to get people to think I'm great because I'm not worried about them accepting me or even liking me. I'm doing this because God has already accepted me, and I'm doing this for God. And if I'm doing it for God, then it doesn't matter how that person responds to me. Because sometimes that's what happens, right? I might be really nice to David because I'm a Christian. That's a good thing. But let's say that David's in a really bad mood, and so David's really rude to me. And so I think, so last time I treated him nicely. Okay, Christians don't do that. Right? It may still bother me that he did that, but a Christian is one I should be thinking, I wonder how things are with David. I wonder why he was rude. You know, maybe, maybe he's going through some difficulty in life. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe he needs me to pray for him. Or maybe there's something he hasn't resolved. Or maybe he's under some kind of extra pressure. Whatever it happens to be, I'm basically giving him the benefit of the doubt, seeking to understand him, because I don't need him to be nice to me for my life to be good and to be at ease. All right, my concern is for him because I know who I am in Christ. I understand who I am in Christ. So again, it doesn't mean it may not hurt my feelings. It doesn't mean it won't hurt my feelings. He might hurt my feelings. But even with that, it doesn't, it's not a thing. Okay, it's not a thing. I don't hold that against him even for a few minutes. All right, I might, and, and I might address him. I, I might say, whether it's then or later, say, hey, David, when I was talking to the other day, I, you were kind of sharp with me. Is everything okay? All right, so I'm, I'm not pretending that he wasn't. But my goal isn't to scold him. My goal is to find out what's going on. Now, let's just say, in David's life, nothing's going on. That's just how he is. But if he's a Christian, then my job isn't over. And let's just say he says, 
And he might even say, nothing's going on. <laughs> All right, or something like that. Then, then I, but if I'm in a, in a position to do so, let's say we know each other pretty well, so I'm in a position to do so and say, well, David, you know, look, I can handle it, but that's not pleasing to the Lord. You know, God wants you to be kind. He wants you to be gentle. He wants you to be understanding. All right, so for his sake, I'm going to bring those things up to him because he need, that, that's what Christians do. We kind of hold each other accountable. I do it in a nice way. I'm not doing it to feed my ego. All right, so, that, so that's the strength that God gives us. So this idea of being presented blameless then is not so we can stand up there and hold up a trophy and say, I'm the best. You know, look at the trophy I got. I'll never forget one time we got our kids a bunch of rollerblades. This when they were real young, obviously. All my kids are grown. They were doing rollerblades and they're going around. My wife's filming them. And then number two son slides up to the camera and says, so far, I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what I would expect that one to say. Yes, Ron. When that happens to me, it makes me wonder what did I do? What did I say? Because sometimes you might say something. That sure. Is, yeah. That, uh, uh, somebody takes yeah. uh, a different way than you feel it inside when you can't find the proper words. Sometimes. Could be. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife has scolded me about the way I look sometimes. I came out of Kroger and she said, Bob? I go, yeah. She goes, I was just watching you walk across the parking lot. She goes, you look like you want to murder somebody. I said, but I don't. I'm a happy man. She said, you're the only one who knows it. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to work on, I guess, looking pleasant, whatever that looks like. Uh, because I can't see myself, you know. You know, that just seems kind of goofy. But anyway, all right. So along with the idea of being blameless, he tells us he wants us to be beyond reproach. So basically, the idea there is it goes beyond blameless to the point that you're even you cannot even be accused of anything. All right. Remember that in Peter, when he tells us, when he talks a little bit in Peter about suffering for doing good. And the idea there that's presented is that if somebody speaks poorly of you because of your own sin or because of your actions, um, I mean, there's nothing to say. That, that's to be expected. And the idea that he presents is that if someone speaks ill of you, it should be where they have to make it up. Because, and everyone knows that that's not true about you. That's the idea. Uh, and so we want to make sure we live. Now, that's, just so you know, that's hard to live that way. You know how easy it is? I know you know how easy it is to be kind of snappy or to be irritable. And we have all of our excuses already built in. Well, I didn't get much sleep last night. Well, I haven't had my coffee yet. Um, well, I haven't had breakfast yet. I'm not a morning person. We all have our excuses built in. Um, and it, there's, that's, it doesn't matter. None of those things, even if they're all true, don't give us a, a, a reason or an excuse to treat someone else poorly. Uh, we have to treat them kindly. Now, that doesn't mean that you become someone different. If you're not a morning person, that doesn't mean that you have to get, start making yourself get up and start being, you know, chatty Cathy. All right? It's okay to be quiet and just take a while to get going. But at the same time, that doesn't give you the right to snap at someone else because they are a chatty Cathy and they're just, you know, 
Uh, and I, I know this for a fact that most people who are not morning people really hate the individuals who wake up and they're already going 200 miles an hour. They, don't, they think that person's not even a human being. Uh, but then those, those who get up early at 200 miles an hour probably can't figure out why in the world are you not going to sleep at 10 p.m. You know, because they are exhausted and you're now raring to go. Uh, but the idea is we want to be understanding. So the idea, again, with, with being beyond reproach then is that. So we want to make sure then that as we think about our lives as Christians, um, it's not just maybe taking inventory of what I've actually done and then I'm improving. That's good. But also that just the way we come across to people, uh, the way that we, the way, you know, am I consistent in the way that I treat people? And we want to be, you know, we should, we should want that. Um, even though it's never fun for someone, to, for anyone to ever point out anything in your life where you've kind of missed the mark. No one likes that. But we should at the same time actually be happy if someone does that. We should be happy. We want that. I, I've, I've uh, been aware of this for a long time, and I think sometimes we don't think about it. But, you know, I've coached high school football, like, for decades now. And one of the things that people don't always recognize about coaches, even coaches that everybody loves, is you know that the job of a coach, one of his jobs, is to find and point out everything you're doing wrong. That's his job. If all he does is and encourage you, you're not gonna get much better. Now, you'll feel good about yourself for a while, but you're not gonna get much better. And if you're one of those individual coaches that your mom and dad have hired to help you get better, you're not gonna have a job for very long because that's not what they're paying you for. They're not paying you to make them feel better. They're paying you to make them perform better. And the only way you do that is by pointing out what's wrong. Now, so, so that's not necessarily then a negative thing. You can do it in a negative way, but it's not a negative thing. So we have to get away from this idea that when someone points something out to us, they're only doing it because you know, they, they think they're better than you. Some of them might, but that's not the point. We should still pay attention to what they've said. My dad told me a long time ago, he says, whenever anybody says anything negative to you, he says, even if they're completely wrong, he said, look for the grain of truth. And, and the, the whole point is, instead of reacting to that individual, just let that go over your head and evaluate what they've said. And, and he says, there may not be. There may be nothing that is true. They just got an ax to grind because they hate the world. But it may be that whatever they're saying, they're only saying it, they're saying it wrong, communicating it wrong, but there's something there uh, something about you that's, that's hitting them the wrong way, and we need to be aware of that. So, that's, so having a positive attitude about life, then, is not this idea that you're only thinking positive things about yourself and everything else. The idea is that we have a realistic look at, at life, and we choose to have a good attitude towards those things, a recognition that not, we're not, you know, we always say this, well, I'm not perfect, exactly, but we sometimes act as if we still are when someone points something out. So we just want to make sure that, that, that we really do want to grow, we want to get better, um, we want to improve, we don't want other people to be hurt by us, um, we don't want to compromise the truth, uh, we want to be able to speak forthrightly, we want to be understanding, we want to be kind, uh, and we want people to really give us honest feedback. We really should want that. Um, and it, for some people that may be very, very difficult. Sometimes individuals will say, well, you don't understand, I was raised in a home, it was just so negative, all my parents did was cut me down. Well, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. You're a Christian now. 
I know that was bad, but that doesn't have to affect you for the rest of your life. If you know who you are in Christ, you can easily overcome that. And you can become a person who now believes what the Bible says, understands that God really is in charge of everything that goes, that goes on, and that sometimes there are individuals who point some things out, and what they're pointing out is true, and you need to listen and go forward. There'll be other times where the Lord may allow an individual who, again, hates the world and just points the finger at you, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, and let's say you kind of, okay, you kind of take it, you don't react bad, and sometimes the Lord lets that happen so he can say, you see how far you've come? Before, you would have either gone into a shell or you would have reacted with really wild, aggressive anger, and you didn't do either one. It's because you know who you are in Christ. You're, you're maturing. You're growing. So remember, that doesn't mean things are going to go easy in your life. They're not going to. God's never promised that. Uh, but he has promised that he would give us the strength and the wisdom that we need to be able to deal with these things and move forward. And so that's all this stuff that's incorporated and what he's talking about. With all, of our, with all the, the various backgrounds we have, all right, some of us have had troubled childhoods. Some of us had a slightly troubled childhood. Some of us didn't have a troubled childhood. Some of us have gone through all kinds of health issues. Some of us have gone through very few or no health issues. Some of us have gone through some wild ups and downs financially. Others of us, we've never really had to worry about that. Some of us have paid the consequences for a long time of some really dumb decisions that we made. Others, we, we didn't really make much of those. Or maybe we didn't really have to pay the consequences for bad decisions. We all have all those things going on uh, in our backgrounds. God says the same thing to all of us. So that tells us some incredible things about who we are as human beings made in the image of God and that God still holds us each accountable for our living, the way we live, regardless of the background. Those things, so those things that are bad, they're bad. God never says that, that they weren't bad. He doesn't diminish even the impact of them. But what he does promise us is that because God is who he is, and because the Spirit indwells us, He does give us the ability and the strength to be able to overcome those things so they no longer are a burden to us. They no longer, they no longer define who we are. We are defined who we are by the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And that's what's really important. We live in a day and age where people are all messed up about identity. They're all messed up about you know, who they are or what they're trying to become or whatever it happens to be. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of things in the world that, that's wrong, just a ton of it. And a lot of people, have, again, have gone through unbelievable amount of hurt. It's just, you can just let it all go. You can. You really can. Too often we're concerned that that individual won't know. We want them to suffer like we've suffered. Well, that's revenge. Let God take care of that. So don't worry about that. Right? Sometimes you want others to know how much we've suffered. Because that, see, our suffering is becoming our identity. And so we hold on to that so that it's because I'm trying to control how you treat me. And I want you to treat me a certain way. I want to manipulate you. We don't think that out, but that's what we're doing. You don't have to do that anymore. I'm a Christian. Whatever needs I have, God's going to make sure my needs are met. He's going to make sure my intellectual needs are met, my emotional needs, my spiritual needs, my physical needs. He's, he promises that in the Bible. The only time that those needs that we have will not be answered by God is when A, he gives us the answer of the resources and we make a bad decision with it, or we're in times of persecution. 
So the Lord will make sure that you always have a meal. If you don't have a meal, it's because of your bad decisions or it's, we're in a time of persecution. Now, he didn't say you're always going to have lasagna and spaghetti, but we're, always, but we're going to have what we need. And, and I, believe that, that I believe what the Bible says. I've seen it happen over and over again. And you can tell by looking at me that I've not missed any meals. All right? The Lord's been really good um, to me. And so the bottom line is, is that um, God really does, he really will meet our needs in every way. And uh, I think sometimes when you read through the Word of God, there's points and there's stories in there where individuals almost kind of, it's almost like you dare God to take care of you. God, God's never backed down from a challenge, and he's not worried about it because everything's in his hands. And so what, what he wants, and the reason why Paul is telling us these things, he wants us to get on board with the goals and the plans that God has for us. And remember, the goals and the plans that God has for us, you know, we, we don't want to think like the world does. You know, I know what God's plans for me. He, God wants me to be a CEO of some big company. Well, maybe, but that is not the point. The point is, is that God wants you to pursue holiness and to pursue him. You become a CEO or you don't become a CEO. That happens along the way. Whatever talents you have, whatever doors are open, whatever it happens to be. But the idea is that whatever you are, whatever you do with your life, we do so in a way where we are blameless. We do so in a way where we can't even be accused of wrongdoing because we're living the authentic Christian life. And that's what God's called us to live. And just so you know, don't think of that in terms of what I call the American version. The American version of living the authentic Christian life is you live the authentic Christian life and you are rewarded now. And so you'll get job promotions and you'll make more money. That's, that's the American way. That's not the Bible way. You might have that, but remember that for most of the history of Christianity, that is not what happened to Christians. Christians have, you know, our position here in this country is very unusual. Christians, in a sense, are in a position of political power. That's not true in most countries. And it's not been true throughout history. Right? Most, of the, most of the time, the Christians were extremely poor. There were some that were rich, but most of them were poor. And um, so we want to make sure that we recognize then that the life that God has called us to live, again, is a life that is, is successful on, on his terms. And so whatever situation we find ourselves in, in that situation, we, we do that uh, and make sure that we honor the Lord in that way. And that's what this, this, all this is talking about here in this passage. Let me read to you what Alexander McLaren, he was a, a, a pretty, uh, pretty good preacher back in the day, like we're talking like 17, 1800s. And he said this about verse 22 of Colossians chapter 1. He says, we ought then to keep very clear before us, this is the crowning objective of Christianity. It's not to make men happy, except as a consequence of holiness. Not to deliver from penalty, except as a means to holiness, but to make them holy. And being holy, to set them close by the throne of God. No man understands the scope of Christianity or judges it fairly <clears throat> excuse me, who does not give full weight to that as its own statement of its purpose. The more distinctly we as Christians keep that purpose prominent in our thoughts, the more we shall have our efforts stimulated and guided and our hopes fed even when we are saddened by a sense of failure. We have a power working in us which can make us white as angels pure as our Lord is pure, if it, being able to produce perfect results, 
has produced only such imperfect ones, we may ask ourselves, where is the reason for the partial failure, uh, the partial failures and the lies? If we believed more vividly that the real purpose and use of Christianity was to make us good men, we should surely labor more earnestly to secure that end. We should take more to heart our own responsibility for the incompleteness with which it has been attained in us and should submit ourselves more completely to the operation of the might of the power which works in us. So again, Alexander McLaren was pretty flowery in a lot of his language and the way that he preached and uh, could, could really produce a lot of great word pictures as he explained the scripture. But what he's really getting at is for us to understand the purpose of God in our lives so then that way when it comes to reading the, like, you know, we talk a lot about reading the Bible every day. Some individuals, they don't mean to do this, but they do this. They read the Bible every day almost as if it's like a good luck charm. If I do that every day, things will go well. Well, that's not necessarily true. All right, this got nothing to do with that. All right, we read the Bible every day because we want to hear what God has to say to us. God speaks to us through his word. He shapes us by his word. He encourages us by his word. Um, that is the permanent record. It's the permanent advice he's left for all of us to read and to digest uh, and to assimilate as we live our lives on the earth. And so that's, how, that's, that's the main way we commune with God. And that then fills us with his wisdom so then as we live in the world, we can achieve the things that God wants us to achieve, but we can achieve them his way in a way that honors him and pleases him. And in that, we're going to find, again, fulfillment and joy. And I would even, yes, happiness, because our, the kind of happiness we desire becomes a little bit different than maybe how the world sees happiness. But it's, it's very much all tied into that. And so we, we begin to approach the Bible then much differently. Uh, we actually approach it like we sometimes hear. I want to feed my soul. And the word of God is the best way to feed my soul. Um, just in the same way we feed our bodies every day. Whether you eat one meal a day or three meals a day or you do the six small meals a day, whatever it happens to be. We, we, eat our, we eat every day to fuel our bodies so we can accomplish what we need to accomplish, whatever our job is and whatever we have to get done in life. Same idea with our soul. Our soul needs daily nourishment. And so that's how we approach the Bible. So it's not, so it's not like a drudgery. You know, it's not like, oh, I've got to read the Bible, right? Um, I guarantee you that um, when I sit down to dinner and it's prime rib, I don't sit down and go, oh, I've got to eat prime rib. You know, that's not, that's not how that is. And if it's just meatloaf, it doesn't matter. I dig meatloaf too, all right? <laughs> you can tell my problem is I like a lot of things. But anyway, but the point is that most time when we eat, it's not really a drudgery. Right? Unless you're on some weird diet because you're going to have surgery. That becomes a drudgery. But the thing is, is that our approach to the Bible becomes very different. It's no longer a burden. It's not no longer this thing I have to do. It, it, and there will be times when it's hard. There will be times that it's difficult. But we just keep at it. And the more that we feed on the Word of God, the easier it becomes. And actually, the greater our desire. Uh, remember that spiritual hunger and physical hunger work kind of in opposite directions. Physical hunger... When you eat, you feel satisfied, and you're done, you, don't, you don't want to eat anymore, all right? When it comes to spiritual hunger, when you feed on the Word of God, it is satisfying, but also it stimulates your appetite. Right? You want more later. You want, you want more of that. Same idea. Um, I guess if we could say we, if you approach physical food like a teenager, that's how it affects them. They eat a meal, and they're like, what's, 
what's next? You know, they're ready for second breakfast, second lunch, and second dinner. Anyway, so uh, look at verse 23. Again, he's talking about presenting them holy and blameless uh, to the Lord. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation into heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So he begins verse 23 by saying, if indeed you continue in the faith. So here's what's important. I've mentioned to you before about this guy that wrote uh, a series of books called Weist Word Studies. He was an expert in Greek. And so there are times that he will explain the Greek to help us to understand more clearly what is said in English. Uh, because sometimes the English may not convey the right idea. So when we read, if indeed you continue, what he tells us about the word if is it's not that he's describing a hypothetical or unfilled condition. Because that's normally how we use the word if. You can have this if you do that, right? So when I say if you do this, that's, that's, that's a condition, all right? That's, why, that's how I'm using the word if. What he says is the word if here is not used that way, all right? Um, it's used with a, what they call the indicative. So the idea is of assuming you continue in the faith. So he's writing to believers, and so in a sense he's saying, if you continue, or as you continue, or assuming you continue, right? So, he's, so this isn't like where he's kind of dangling this thing out there and saying, well, you get these things if you do this. You know, there is some of that in the Bible, but when it comes to what he's talking about here, he, again, he's trying to describe the state that we're in, what God is actively doing in us, what we do in a sense in cooperation with God as we live in holiness and pursue holiness and what God's doing for us. And he's talking about how this is going to happen. What is this? Well, that is the day he presents us holy and blameless. How does that happen? Well, I want that to happen in my life. And so he says, so we're going to assume that you're continuing in the faith. Right? You're continuing to do the things that you're supposed to do. So basically the idea is you are continuing in the gospel um, as it was preached by Paul or whoever. Uh, as we continue in the gospel or we continue to live in light of the gospel, that reveals that a person was saved and that individual then is going to be presented as holy, without blemish, without charge before God. So Paul then, when he talks to these Colossians, he is addressing individuals that are, that are truly saved or truly born again. Some people, if, if you hear me teach a lot, I often will use the word true before the word believer or Christian. And the reason why I do that is because, especially in our country, there are many individuals who will call themselves Christians who may not be. Right? They may just be a person who goes to church, maybe regularly, maybe semi-regular. Some people do believe that because they were born in America, that makes them a Christian. They really do believe that. And that's not really an unusual concept. If you're born in a Muslim country, Muslims consider you a Muslim. Uh, if you're born in a Hindu country, many of them believe that you're, of course you're Hindu. Right? They, all that's tied together. Christianity has always made that very different and that it's not the case. You, know, you become a Christian when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You, know, you become God's child at that point in time. But so Paul then is writing a true, he's writing to true believers not someone who just professes to be a believer. Remember that, that sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference between a true believer and someone who's not. Remember Jesus said in Matthew uh, that uh, in that day, many will call me Lord, Lord, and he will say, I don't know who you are. And they'll say, Lord, we did miracles in your name. 
and we cast out demons in your name. So they start talking about all these things they do, what we would consider to be in Christian service and work. And then Jesus again says, uh, I never knew you. And what's interesting about that passage is in the Greek language, it's much stronger. And what Jesus is really saying there, he says, I have at no time ever known who you are. That's pretty striking. And again, if you read that carefully, right, these are very religious people that he's talking to. This, these are not individuals who are out there murdering people and trying to find new ways to sell drugs to people. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to individuals who are in the religious world, who are living a religious life, and they're saying, and he basically says that they are individuals who practice wickedness. And so the idea was is that they were doing all these other things, but if you want to say in their private life or what have you, they were not living in compliance with what the Word of God said. You know, if you go through the Old Testament, you see how God scolds Israel, the way they mistreat people, you know, they mistreat the orphans, mistreat the widows, uh, they'd rip people off, all those kinds of things. He would come down hard on them because they weren't living to the standard that God had set. He, 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 in fact, there's a couple of passages where he says, you think you honor me with your sacrifices because God did demand all these animal sacrifices. He did. And they did that. But God's letting them know that that's not what, I, I've not called you just to do that. It's all of this. You, you must do that, but you can't live like this. And so he would come down hard on them. And that's when he said that your sacrifices to me basically stink because you're not living from a pure heart. Same reason that an individual can go to church. You can go to church every day of your life. If you're not living in a way that pleases the Lord, you're not worshiping God. You're going through the motions. You're pretending. Everyone is fooled but God. All right? You, you can fool. You know, I've told people before, I said, you can come to church and you can act like you're a really good Christian and you fool me. And I believe that you are not only just a Christian, that you're a godly person. And if you fool me, what have you accomplished? Not much, because I'm not the one that sits on the throne from Judgment Day. That's not me. It's God. I, I will admit, I can be fooled. I've been fooled before. I'll be fooled again. Uh, the, the key is that you want to make sure there's a genuine faith. So that's what he's getting into with all of this. So the idea here then is with these true believers, they are not just those who profess to be Christians. Um, they're not individuals who say they're Christians and maybe follow some kind of heresy. Uh, these are individuals who are living in light of the gospel. They're living out their faith uh, is the idea. You know, they're living as a, what we would say, you're living like a Christian. You're living uh, in light of what the Bible says. In the expositor's Greek commentary, it says this. Uh, what Paul says here is directed against the false teacher's assurance that the gospel that they heard needed to be supplemented if they wished to attain salvation. So the heresy that they were uh, part, one of the heresies they were in danger of falling into, and some had fallen into, was that though they believed in Christ, there were other things they had to add to their faith to get saved or to be saved. Um, it's very similar. If you, if you were to go to a Catholic church and listen carefully uh, to the doctrine that they teach, which probably wouldn't be on a Sunday morning, probably be in a class, but the idea is what they teach is, they teach that salvation is, is by God's grace plus your works. What Protestant churches teach, at least the ones that believe the Bible, Baptist, Presbyterian, etc., is we believe that you are saved by God's grace, period. We do talk about doing works because we are saved, not to get saved. I'm not trying to earn points with God because I can't. I'm living in obedience. In fact, the only reason I can live in obedience to what God says 
is because God actually gives me the strength to be able to do so. But I can't, I can't add anything to make myself more savable. It's all really done by God's grace. And so that was the heresy. And of course, if you think about it, the, one, the individual, and one of the dangers the individual faces is if, if you believe that salvation is both God's grace and what you do, then it's easy to get to a point to where you will think pretty highly of yourself. Well, I mean, John's a good guy, but I mean, he hasn't done enough to get saved. I have. I mean, we both go to church, but I'm way more holier than he is. And so I know, I know I'm saved. See, what happened? See, where, you, where, who's, who's getting the glory now? Well, I'm giving it to myself. You know? I mean, John's a nice guy, but he hasn't done what I've done. You know how many hours I've spent teaching the Bible? How many hours has he spent teaching the Bible? I blow him out of the water. See? That's, just, that's, not, how, that's not how it works. Because be if, if I'm not a true believer, God may say, uh, Bob, I don't know who you are. Oh, John, come here, brother. I'm like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> but that's, uh, that's kind of what he's getting at. So perseverance then. So pers- when we say, when you perseverance, the idea is that you are persevering in the faith. You continue in the faith. Living the way you're supposed to live. It does not earn you salvation. It really shows that you were born again when you say that you were born again. So that's why sometimes as Christians, maybe a lot, what, there's an expectation that we should all have. And the expectation is, is that when a person becomes a Christian, they change. Some people will change more visibly than others because of where they're coming from. Right? If an individual's out there beating people and robbing people, when he gets saved, he stops doing that. That's pretty noticeable. So we see that right away. But if you are, basically, if you were raised in a home and you're pretty moral in everything you do, no one's going to see those huge changes like that. But there should still be change. There should be change in your life that your family can see. Now, we do grow at different rates for whatever the reason. Our sin, our stubbornness, our, the flesh is weak. But there's going to be changes in your life. Your attitudes are going to change. The things that other people don't know are going to change. Or the things in your life that only your family sees are going to change. But you're going to become different. And the longer that we are believers, the greater the change should be. And, and, when, and, and when there's not that change, we have a right to doubt salvation. Now, it's always first, remember the Bible is always a mirror. So I'm not running around trying to judge everybody else's salvation. Right? So I don't pick up my Bible and say, well, I know we're all continuing to change, but you know, I don't see John changing. That's not what that's for. It's a mirror. Am I different? So, and you know, sometimes people can, we can become very, uh, you know, sometimes an individual can be too lenient on themselves, which is the norm. Um, oh yeah, I've changed enough. Well, I'm still changing, and we really haven't. Uh, sometimes there's individuals who nitpick themselves to death, and you know, there's some other issues with that. But the bottom line is this, is that can you say, so if, let's say you've been a believer at least, if you've been a believer for 10, 15, 20 years, can you say, well, just think about your life, objectively, as much as possible, can you say that your life has, that you are more godly now than you were five years ago? I'm not saying, I'm not giving you a checklist, saying, you know, you, you know you, instead of reading the Bible, three hours a week, you're now reading five hours a week. It's not like that. 
But it is true that you will be more, you should be more godly now. So the Christian life, some people describe, you know, it's kind of like this, you know, there's something to do good, something to do bad. But here's what should happen. If you're doing this in your Christian life, which is kind of norm, it may, it may be like this, maybe like this. But if you start here five years ago, no matter how much of this you've done, you should be here now. So there's, at least, so there's progress. And sometimes what happens will be less of this. It becomes just a little more of that. Because you're overcoming sin. You're walking with the Lord. The Lord is strengthening you. You know, we are striving to become sinless. We will never be sinless, but we're striving to do that. We also will recognize that even though maybe some of the, what we would call the bigger sins are gone, or I no longer do them, or I, maybe I never really did them, the, what we would consider the more insignificant things are beginning to change. So I'm not gossiping like I used to, because no one really talks about gossiping too much. There's a lot of that going on. All right, but I gossip less. All right? Uh, I, never really, I never really cursed a whole lot, but I did curse a lot in my head. You know, some people that are like that, right? You know, you don't say anything, but in your head, you know, whatever. But, but you know there's less of that. That's great. All right? It doesn't excuse what you're doing, but it's good. All right? If you are reading the Bible more, that's good. Maybe it's just an attitude thing, and your attitude towards people in general is just better. All right? Maybe, maybe you no longer, you know, when you drive, you're no longer riding on someone's bumper because they cut in front of you. I used to do that. I don't do that now. I used to. Man, I get right up on them. Like, I just, I can't believe you're out here. And they're probably thinking, who is this idiot behind me? You know? He's two inches from my bumper. If I have to stop, he's going to go through the trunk. All right? But anyway, but, but, there's, but there should be these changes in our lives. You know, then, but then here's the big ones, what I still call the big ones. So if you're brave, I'm speaking to those who are married. If you're brave, when you're well rested and you've had a nice meal, ask your spouse if they would say that you are more godly now than you were five years ago. And to ask them to be very honest. Now, I'm not trying to get people to where they're going to become divorced. Right. But the idea is, is that those who are closest to us, the, and, you, sh and you, you should want the truth. You want it. And now, women, if a man asks you this, just remember how men think. All right? They want details. Of course, then when you start giving it to them, they don't want it. But anyway. <laughs> but the point is, is if they say, okay, they, they may ask for examples. All right, so now the goal is not to put your spouse down. The goal is to say, well, and they may say they may say like this, I've just noticed over the past year you've been a lot more irritable with me or maybe less patient. That's important. What you don't want to do is say, no, I haven't. You don't understand the kind of stress I'm under. Okay, you just messed that one up. All right, so the idea is to, is to take what they say, even if they didn't say it perfectly. All right, we should want that for our lives. They may say, yeah, you've been a lot less patient with the kids, or you've been a little more harsh, or whatever it happens to be. All right, I've noticed, you know, there's just things, and ask them. And, and the, but the goal is to pray for each other, to grow together. All right, besides, if you don't ask your spouse, they still know, right? They still know you're not as godly now as you were five years ago. So it's not like it's a secret, All right? So, the, so you want them to know that you want to change, or you want to continue to change.
And hopefully, they, and, they, and sometimes, maybe a lot of times, the answer is this. Well, in some ways, you absolutely are. In other ways, I don't know. And that's okay. We're human beings. That's how it's going to happen. And, and, but the goal is to help each other. So, so don't, don't be the individual who says, well, I'm going to ask her to tell me what's wrong with me first. Because then if she really gives me a list, man, I'll lower the boom when it's my turn. Right? That's, this, is, this, is not, this, is not, this is not what that's for. All right? What it's for is to genuinely to encourage and help each other to grow as believers. And then when it comes to your children, sometimes people say, well, you know, I know my son when he was seven years old, I know he became a believer. And he might have. And that's great. But you need to make sure you look for fruit in his life. And what would that fruit look like? Well, if he's got siblings, you'll be able to tell. It doesn't mean they'll never fight again, because I guarantee you they will. But there should be differences. There should be, there should be less of that, or at least less that they instigate. There should be a greater care and concern. You, should, you know, uh, in their attitudes towards mom and dad, towards their chores, all those small little things become different. It's not that you're only a Christian at church. It's when you're at home. And it's okay when you talk to your kids just to say, say, you know, remember, you know, you, you know, I would say one of my kids, I said, remember, I'll say, Jeremy, I said, remember dad, you and daddy have talked before about living as a Christian and, and you know, growing as a Christian and doing the things that God wants you to do? You know, and he'll say yes. And I'll say, you know, I said, you became a believer when you were four years old. And, you know, I can tell that there's a lot of things in your life that are changing. But you know what? I've noticed over the past, you know, several months, you really are in a lot of fights with your brother. And I don't know what, what's going on. I don't know if, are you, if it's you're more irrit irritable or maybe it's him. But even if it's him, you're supposed to be kind and patient. You know, all those things that are really hard when it comes to your siblings. All right? And it's not that we're, and we're, not, expecting, we're not expecting perfection. But the idea is, is to let them know that God has a standard he expects all of us to meet, including children. And being, this, this, the same way we have to be patient with each other, they have to be patient with each other. And we're all growing. And so, you wanna, and so we, we want to see, am I seeing that in their lives? And if I'm not, I can, you know, you want to talk to them about those things. Um, now, if, if, it's always easier to start when your kids are young. Just if, if you're going to do that, when your kids are three, four, five, six, you have what I call those kind of spiritual conversations. They'll be a lot more natural when they're 14. If you've not had them and you start when they're 14, it may be a little rough. So you've got to start maybe a little differently if you haven't done that before. But it's okay. I'm not telling you don't even bother because it's hard. We, we want to do that. You, and I'm thinking this. Most parents, I, would, I think all Christian parents, want their kids to go to heaven. That would be true. We want our kids to be truly Christians, not they believe because mom and dad believe. They need to believe on their own. And so there's an expectation. We want to understand that this is what Christ really demands of us. And, and if you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you. Even as a six-year-old, he lives in you. And he will help you to do this. I want them to learn how to depend upon God, how to think about the Lord, how to think about the Bible, and realize that it matters to God how you treat your brother. It matters to God how you treat your sister when she's irritating. It matters to God when your little sister won't leave you alone. It matters to God if your brother changes the channel on the TV and you are watching something. It matters. I'm not saying what he did was right. But how do you handle that as a, as a Christian? And that, that, so that's the kinds of things that's very practical. Uh, and, and, and I think we need to think that way as believers, not always think of these 
I guess, these big somehow spiritual things. It's all this other stuff that, that uh, we deal with on a daily basis, whether we're seven years old or 70, that, that we need to act as believers and recognize that this is how God wants us to live and that God's going to reward us in this way. And so that's what perseverance is. That perseverance, again, is that if I did become a believer when I was 10, I'm still doing it when I'm 20 and when I'm 30 and when I'm 40 and when I'm 50 and when I'm 60 because I'm a true believer in Christ. You know, you don't, you don't see somebody who's been married and all of a sudden they're going through all this trouble after being married for 50 years. And they say, well, I was faithful for 40. I'm just tired. Go, Wait a minute. What do you mean? We, the norm would be, well, if you've done it for 40, you would continue, <laughs> you know, to do the right thing. That doesn't make any sense. Why are you throwing all that away? So anyway, we have to stop there. And we will, we will uh, continue on next week. But let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we are grateful for your kindness and again for your word. Father, we pray that you help us to think about all these things that Paul is saying and to pause for a moment and to, to kind of contemplate the words, the phrases that he uses as he talks to, these, as he talks to those in Colossae. We pray, Lord, you help us to think of your word in terms of where we are as individuals and where we need to be. We thank you, Lord, because we know that we're imperfect. We thank you, Father, for what it says in Romans, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And for that, we are grateful. Because, Father, we know that there are, it seems to be there are seasons in life where we just mess up a lot. But, Father, we're grateful that you're a God who forgives and a God who will enable us and help us to do what's right. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to change our hearts so that, Father, we would long for the things that you long for us. And that we would see that what you want for us, Father, is really what's best for us. I pray, Lord, for those who strive in these ways, that, Father, that you would greatly increase their joy. That they would have a very deep and lasting sense of satisfaction with life. And that whatever they do, they will be blessed. That they will see the beauty of who you are, of your consistency and your grace. And they will recognize that living uh, in light of the gospel and living out the grace that you've given them uh, brings a, 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 just a great sense of purpose and satisfaction in living. We ask now, Lord, that you would dismiss us with your kindness, that you would watch over us and keep us safe until we gather again on Sunday to worship you. As always, we thank you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.